You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the Inside China podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. And this episode is not what we originally planned to make. The big picture is nobody in Hong Kong planned to have the largest single rainstorm event since where the records were first kept in the 1880s. There is a lot going on locally, but here we are. And in this episode, we want to give you a sense of some of the bigger issues happening for mainland China, for politics, economics and geopolitics at the moment. At a time when it seems every day, every hour brings a new hot take or opinion from someone declaring they know what's going to happen next for China and the Beijing central government led by its president Xi Jinping. You're going to hear from a trio of senior South China Morning Post staff who you've heard from regularly over these last five years. They've got some fascinating insights into some of the China story's dominating world headlines and one or two things that aren't receiving the attention they should. And then you're going to hear me sign off for good. There'll be no flowery goodbyes, just my deep gratitude to you listening right now, wherever you are. Let's get to it. Fibar Birmingham is our Europe correspondent based in Brussels. Good afternoon from Hong Kong. Good morning to Brussels. Good morning, Finbar. Good morning from a roasting Brussels where we are undergoing a, an Indian summer of sorts. It's in, it's in the 30 degree territory here and it's gone September. Everybody's back to work after the European summer break here. So things are heating up politically and meteorologically. Finbar, the latest news is that Chinese President Xi Jinping won't be attending the G20 summit this weekend in New Delhi. Depending on where you're reading the news, you're either reading articles that India was snubbed, Joe Biden was snubbed, or that the Australian Prime Minister was snubbed. But what's the reaction from the European Union? Yeah, I mean, nobody really knows why he's not going. Xi Jinping was supposed to be meeting European leaders there as well. I know that Charles Michel, who's the president of the European Council, and Ursula von der Leyen, who's the president of the European Commission, Prime Minister of Britain, Rishi Sunak, they all had meetings if not arranged, then in in the works with C, and they were told last week he's not going, but they weren't given any reason. Everybody in Europe is trying to read the tea leaves also, and you know we have those very same rumours about you know is it a is it a sort of simmering tensions with New Delhi? Is it because he's not ready to meet Joe Biden? Is it because the Chinese economy's in a really dire straits? Is it because he wants to diminish the G20 at the expense of the BRICS? I mean, you have all the same rumours doing the rounds here as probably have in, in Canberra, Washington, and possibly in China too. And I know in Hong Kong, obviously. So I think that sort of palace intrigue has has continued since the disappearance of Qinggang. You know, the Europeans are of the mind now that China is less readable than ever. It's becoming even more of a black box, Chinese elite politics. So there's there's that. And then there's also a level of I guess, frustration a little bit, but maybe that's too strong of a word. But I think, you know, that there's a sense here in Europe that Xi Jinping calls the shots. He's at the top of the tree and everybody else sort of, he says, jump, everyone else says, how high. And if you really want to find out what's going on and and get a sense of where things are going in China, he's the man to talk to. And on the the key issues in Europe at the moment, uh, mainly the Russian invasion of Ukraine, There's a sense that getting in front of Xi Jinping and giving him the European point of view of the war in Ukraine, they think is essential because he doesn't hear that from his close circle of advisors. 
So there is an element of frustration that they've missed out on an opportunity to have those discussions with C. Whether or not it makes any difference, I don't know, but I see the logic. You know, you may as well say these things to his face if he doesn't hear them from anybody else. So I think that's it. I mean, in general, the, the, there's a sense here that the Chinese have been very intransigent with the G20 statement and the communique. The Indians haven't been very easy either. But everyone here was on holiday when the BRICS summit was going on. There were a few diplomats that I spoke with over the course of, of that summit. And there was a sense that it emphasized the disconnection a little bit between Europe, the West and those BRIC nations and the new invitees to the BRICS, Saudi Arabia and so on. There has been a slight dislocation over over recent months and some here are worried about that. Um, however, some folks are also keen to play down the significance of this. I mean, that the, the BRICS is, is going to usurp the, the G20 for a start. You've got India and China in there together who don't particularly like each other. So, so yeah, I think that's been the conversation I've been having with people over the last couple of weeks anyway. So Finbar, let me take you back to something we spoke about on this podcast back in May. It was then a buzzword, which seems now to be a geopolitical policy, and that was the EU's plan to, quote, de-risk from China. You said it caught on because it's more vague than decoupling. What can you tell us about the concept of de-risking now and how that term is being used by policymakers, by those people inside the EU and the halls of power? I think you were being a wee bit generous there when you say it's evolved into a policy because it's very much still a buzzword. <laughs> it's one of those things that it's sort of like, as as you implied, it means something different to everybody who says it. And it's intentionally vague so that each member state of, there's 27 governments that have to be on the same page here. So the looser and the vaguer the, the language, the easier it is to get them all on board. So where we are at the moment is that they proposed something in June, a communique, very, very sort of lightweight, scant on detail. It's called an economic security strategy, which the shorthand of is de-risking. And the European Commission has proposed this, and through that they want to have more export controls and for the first time restrictions on outbound investments into certain sectors of the Chinese economy. And member states didn't like this very much. There has been significant pushback, and there are multiple reasons, one of which is that a lot of it veers into the competency that the member states hold for themselves. The EU is complicated. I won't get into too much of the detail, but suffice to say that um, there are some things that are done in Brussels and other things that are done in European capitals. And things that matters of national security, things like export controls are traditionally done in the capitals. And any whiff that Brussels is trying to take some of that away and trying to centralise things further really doesn't go down well ordinarily. There's, there, there's always these accusations, you know, every week we hear about a new power grab from Brussels, and this was certainly the tenor of the debate in June when they were proposing this. Another element is that some of the free traders in the EU, the, you know, Ireland, where I'm from, the, the Nordics and so on, they don't like this because it, it reeks of protectionism, yet more protectionist measures that are damaging the free market and, and making Europe more protectionist. And, you know, so these are um, these are big issues that do have to be overcome. At the moment, the Commission is putting together a list of critical technologies that they think have to be protected. You know, we expect to see things like quantum computing, artificial intelligence, semiconductors. Those are the likes that they're probably going to propose. And then they have to work out how can they agree with the member states of a way to take this forward. 
It's further complicated by the fact that the United States did an executive order on outbound investment restrictions a few weeks ago, and that's probably going to become legislation, or they're going to write the legislation in October. Now, what? why does that matter for Europe? Well, if Europe doesn't come up with its own outbound investment restrictions, they're likely to have to comply with the American one, because despite the fact that the Americans have assured the European Union that these won't be extraterritorial, if they're not, then they're totally ineffective because if the United States bans investment in certain sectors of the Chinese economy, then what's to stop the Europeans just plugging the gaps and the Australians just plugging the gaps or the Japanese or whoever? So, you know, these things are only, I suppose, effective if, if they're enforced, you know, across the board. Um, so there, there is a sense that the Europeans need to do their own thing or else they get forced to do it anyway by the Americans. So, and just to add another wrinkle, we're heading into election season here in Europe. Next summer, there's going to be the European elections. Will Ursula von der Leyen get another term as commission president? Will there be continuity of all these policies? Already, we're seeing a lot of her commissioners jump ship. Some of the key ones, Margaret Vestager, the competition chief, uh, left her role today, this morning, to run for the presidency of the European Investment Bank. She's one of those who've been going after the likes of the big tech companies and Huawei, TikTok and, and so on. She is a key part of the de-risking agenda, key ally of, of von der Leyen on, on that front. You know, there's a changing of the guard in the Foreign Service. There's going to be a new Asia-Pacific chief. So these are all complicating the EU's push to get this done. It'll end up somewhere. We just don't know where. And that's the vaguest thing you'll ever hear on this podcast. <laughs> Finbar, you mentioned elections. And there's a particular party in Germany that's doing really well so far. And they recently visited China. You reported on this. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Sure, Jasmine. This is a story I had time to do over the course of August when things were a bit slower here. I've been meaning to do it for a while. This is the AFD, AfD, the German far right. Quite unsavory characters on many levels, uh, you know, accused of being racist, homophobic, having new Nazis in the ranks. But they sent their first ever delegation to, to China in June. Fascinating bunch of people, in a sense. One of the joint leader of the AFD is a lady called Alice White. She's a lesbian who lives in Switzerland, who's married to someone from South Asia and has adopted children from, I think, India. But she's against uh, gay marriage and anti-immigrant. So, it's, it, you know, the, these details are quite intriguing. But they're riding high in the polls. They're polling second in Germany nationwide. I mean, there's another couple of years before there's an election in Germany, so we don't know where it'll end up. And of course, given that Germans often use coalitions, it's unlikely that the AFD will, well, the famous last words, but it looks unlikely at this stage that the AFD will be in power. I want to just interrupt there, Finbar. Why are a far-right party, presumably based on racist principles, visiting Beijing? And did Beijing make any kind of public announcement? No, there wasn't anything public on the Chinese side. The AFD did do a press release, and I spoke to a couple of those people who travelled afterwards. They said that they were made feel very welcome, that the Chinese officials that they met were very complimentary about their success in the polls. So the Chinese are paying attention here. They obviously want to make contact in all of the relevant places. If it looks as though this party may play a role in some future governance in Germany, then it's better for China to know them than not to know them. Uh, I think there's a level of pragmatism there that is fair enough, I suppose. And I guess on an ideological level, this party is the most pro-China party in, in Germany at the moment. Um, I mean, there's a weird concept in European politics, the horseshoe theory, where the sort of, if you think about the shape of a horseshoe magnet, the the centre bit is centre, 
the left and the right are the tips, and on many issues they're almost connected, right? So, so you know, we we saw this explode over the course of the pandemic, where you know you had all these tech bros and yoga moms and so on sharing space with the anti-vaxxers on the right and stuff. So, there is a certain space in politics where they have common ground these days, and China seems to be one of them. In Germany, particularly, the far right and the far left are very much on the same page. I thought this was interesting, and I, I wondered why it was. And somebody, a very good analyst from Berlin, told me that you have to remember that the Chinese government is, I guess, nominally in in European terms, left wing being a communist party, but it's also sort of totalitarian state. And it's not that useful to ascribe the old left right spectrum onto modern day China. Uh, Hardliners in the CCP are inherently conservative. They do share many of the policy points of the AFD, such as, you know, the nuclear family and these sorts of nationalistic tendencies. So when you broke down, it actually made perfect sense. I thought it was a story worth pointing out. It hadn't really been covered in great detail. And, um, you know, I was, I was glad to have the time to do that. Well, that's fascinating, Finbar. And I guess if it's the end of summer, then all the staff of all the embassies coming back and you're going to put in some serious shoe leather work and uh, wine and canapé work to reconnect with all those contacts. Of course, we'll be watching your reports on scmp.com. And uh, from me, this is my last podcast with the SCMP. So been great working with you. And thank you so much for saying all those years ago, hey, Jared, we need to do a podcast on the trade war. Uh, no problem, Jared. And I'd like to just thank you as well for everything over the last uh, five years, for giving us all a chance and for being the the driving force behind this, the stubborn mule who never admits defeat. <laughs> uh, you've, been, you've been great. You've been an inspiration. And the, the listeners should know that uh, no matter who's been behind the mic, you've always been the, the person at, at the dais twiddling the knobs. Long may you continue twiddling knobs wherever it is that you're going next. It's a real pleasure. And of course, I'm handing you over to the award-winning Jasmine Zay as the head of the SEMP podcast team. Thanks very much, Finbar. See you soon, Finbar. Cheers, guys. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the microphone Chad Bray. He's our UK correspondent based in London for the South China Morning Post, but he was also the former presenter of our China Geopolitics podcast. Chad Bray, good morning. Oh, good morning. It's great to join you again. Well, it's great to have you back on the microphone, Chad. Let's get straight down to business. Speaking about business, the biggest story out of mainland China is, of course, Country Garden, one of the biggest developers in the country, teetering on the brink of default. You've written extensively about it, as well as, of course, the previous property crisis with Evergrande. But let's talk about now what actually happened this week. Has Country Garden gotten out of trouble or just simply postponed it? It's interesting. Country Garden, I think, has, has bought some time for themselves. So two years ago, we had Evergrande, which was one of the biggest developers had actually surpassed Country Garden in terms of sales to residential properties. And they found themselves in a situation where they had large amounts of debt owed to offshore bondholders as well as to onshore bondholders. And about this same time of year in 2021, they found themselves where they were missing payments and were they going to make those payments? And if they didn't, they could be declared a technical default, which then could lead to other bonds being called due, which just would escalate a debt situation. Well, Country Garden was considered one of the safest 
developers out there. It is one of the biggest developers. They had over 3,100 projects across China in just about every province last year. So they found themselves where they missed payments in August. They had maturities coming up on onshore payments in China. And what were they going to do? Well, they managed to extend the maturity, basically having to pay off the entire debt on one of their onshore bonds. And then two bonds that were offshore bonds that they missed payments on, interest payments, they managed to pay those off this week and avoid going into a technical default. All of that adds up to a situation where property is one of the most important drivers of the Chinese economy. And if they were to fail, it could cascade to other developers and create a major issue for the economy and a major issue for Xi Jinping. Chad, it sounds like they're just putting off this payment that they have to pay off eventually. How long do they have? Well, you know, in these situations, it's interesting. So Evergrande, you know, managed to avoid default in in September of 2021. They had a number of bills coming due, but they ultimately defaulted in uh, around December of that year. And that led to them finding their situation where still two years later, they're trying to dig out of their hole. They're trying to convince debt holders to restructure their bonds and be able to sort of get out of this. And they were actually supposed to have a vote at the end of August on this, and it got delayed again. And so, you know, this is the kind of situation where Country Garden has bought themselves some time. They have a number of bills coming due this year. Over the course of this year, JP Morgan recently was estimating they had about two and a half billion U.S. dollars of whether it's maturing debt or it's interest payments that they had to make by the end of the year. They're in a situation where they lost money last year. It was the first time they lost money in more than a decade in terms of their earnings. They lost money in the first six months. They had the largest drop in property sales of any of the top 100 developers in China. That puts them in a really difficult situation when it comes to cash flow. And if they aren't able to just keep servicing what they have, they could find themselves in a really bad situation because that would mean not only do the guys they immediately owe money come due and start calling for it, but all the other bonds they have and loans and, and other things out there, suddenly people are like, well, you can't pay your bill. You violated a covenant. And that means we can come for you for our money too. And that's when things get really rough. And Chad, you make me think about our reporting about the Evergrande collapse on ESCMP.com. And we documented, you know, the protests, both of investors, mum and dad investors, as well as the subcontractors turning up at the Evergrande offices saying, you know, A, where's my apartment? B, where's my money for the work I've done? How is that different for Country Garden? And what is the talk like in banking and investment circles about what comes next for this company? You know, one of the things that people have sort of lined up in the investment community is that Country Garden and Evergrande had different profiles. So Evergrande was somebody who who sort of got out on their skis. They were investing in things. Uh, you know, one of the richest football teams in China, they were uh, had an EV company, which is still around, but, you know, trying to do electric vehicles and, and sort of get beyond just being a property company. Now, Country Garden has done some of that. They have the robotics company that they've started, but that's around doing sort of robotic construction, things that are closer to what they do. 
also, you know, one of the big differences is Evergrande wrote a lot of uh, essentially your IOUs to subcontractors. And these things would get passed around from one subcontractor to the next subcontractor. And it sort of escalated and created this situation where one person doesn't get paid and then suddenly 20 people will get paid. In the Country Guard situation, it wasn't really that. Like that was a much smaller portion of their total liabilities. Much of their liabilities is about properties that they've already pre-sold. So for them, it's about having enough cash flow to be able to finish those. And if they can do that and keep people happy, then you won't see the protests. You won't see the same kind of issues. And that leads, you know, a certain amount of comfort for the moment for investors. We'll have to see, you know, as the economic situation changes in China, what that means, you know, one of the big issues for them was their profile. They did a lot of investing in the third tier and fourth tier cities. So not the big cities, not Beijing, not Shanghai, you know, not the sort of sure bets like trying to sell a, a flat in London, sell a flat in Hong Kong, sell a flat in New York City. You know, it was very much about going into these communities that are drivers of the economy, but also a lot of people have made bets there. And so there's oversupply, there's a question of, is that sustainable if the Chinese economy isn't growing at the 6%, you know, if it's growing, you know, at five or less, who knows? But I think for them, you know, that they've had to think about this. And when they talked about their earnings in March for the end of last year, they said that we're going to roll that profile back. We're not going to put as much money into the third tier and fourth tier cities. And I think today they're, they're having to even rethink that more. Chad, what's left in the bag for Beijing to fix this problem? You know, this really comes back to the three red lines policy that was put in a few years ago. You had a lot of developers who basically were cash poor, you know, had a lot of debt, and they were using this to continue to fund their operations, to get places built. And suddenly you found yourself in a situation where a lot of developers didn't qualify for that lending anymore. They couldn't do that borrowing spree. It's a little bit like post-crisis in the U.S. where you had the American consumer who had all kinds of credit cards, had all kinds of uh, ability to you know, borrow money against their house to, you know, have a second mortgage, a third mortgage to buy property and do these things because property was never going to be a problem. It was always going to go up. But suddenly you got hit with something where it cut it off. The difference between the U.S. housing crisis and what happened with the developers in China, though, is the government decided to put its thumb down and say, you can't do this. You can't borrow the money. They had a rethink on that in November of last year. They started to put out credit lines through um, the big state-owned banks to developers like Country Garden that were considered safe, that were considered, you know, better bets. And then 10 months later, we find ourselves in a situation where that's not necessarily the case. And how do we go forward? You know, one of the big questions for Beijing is how are we going to convince Chinese buyers to buy homes? because there's a lot of concern right now about the market. There's people that are like, well, I already own my place. I'm buying a second place as an investment for my children's education or for my retirement or you know, for my son getting married and having to have a place because that's the cost to get married. You've got to have a place for the family when you get together. And so it becomes a whole situation of how do you convince people to do that? Because they 
think, well, maybe I can buy later. The prices will come down. Or maybe I want to see it, whether or not Country Garden is going to deliver on these properties. And ultimately, it may be to lowering interest rates to such a point that, you know, everyone's like, it's a steal. I have to do it. But there's only a few things right now, unless they were to go into some kind of bailout situation, which I'm not sure Beijing's willing to do. You know, I, I think from what we've seen in, in terms of policy, you know, she's much more worried about security for the country than he is about economics. Chad, there, we talk about things like marriage and, and young people and second homes. You know, mainland China is seeing marriage rates dropping lower than ever before, 20% youth unemployment, stories about people in their 30s moving back in with their parents and becoming, quote, full-time children. Let's turn to another country that's having a bit of an economic crisis, the one you're in right now, the UK. Chad, we've got audio here of James Cleverly. He's the Foreign Secretary for the UK, just visited Beijing. Here's what he had to say about his trip. We are clear-eyed about the areas where we have fundamental disagreements with China, and I raise those issues when we meet. But I, I think it's important we also recognise that we have to have a pragmatic, sensible working relationship with China because of the issues uh, that affect us all around the globe. Dare I say, Chad, gosh, that's a different tone than what we heard from Rishi Sunak when he was running within the Tory party for the leadership of the party and, and became the unelected prime minister of the UK. May I ask what's changed? Well, you know, I think the situation is, it's almost a little bit like a Republican in the United States. You know, you need to sort of demonstrate your ability to be tough. But at the same time, you need China as an economic partner. And the UK, as compared to the United States, needs it a lot more. Because the UK, with Brexit, they found themselves leaving their largest trading partner. So they've changed the statistics slightly in how they report, where they don't report Europe together as a whole. So the United States technically is the largest trading partner right now. But when you take Europe as a whole, it still remains the UK's largest trading partner. China is their fourth largest trading partner overall behind the United States, Germany, and Norway. And it's a situation where the UK finds itself with the highest level of inflation in Europe. They have a situation where they want to cut deals across the world to try to get UK goods in and not face tariffs and not face high taxes on their products because they need to keep the economy going. But for Sunak in particular, as well as Cleverly, they find themselves facing a real pushback, not only within the Tory party, but across the various parties in parliament, you know, from Labour to the Greens to um, the Scottish National Party. There are a lot of people who have very big concerns about China particularly when it comes to the things around human rights, whether it's uh, Uyghurs, whether it's the Hong Kong national security law, there are large concerns there. And how's the government going to address it? Well, the government says they're going to engage. They're going to go and have cleverly go to China and say, hi, we have issues. We would like you to address them. At the same time, we're open for business, mostly because they have made some changes in terms of their investment laws to try to address 
some issues when it comes to semiconductors, when it comes to other industries that are considered, you know, fundamental to the country. But at the same time, they're very happy to have investment and they want investment and they want investment from across the world. And China is a big market. They buy a lot of McLarens. Talking about fundamental disagreements versus the need for investment money, I'm reminded of just how many Russian oligarchs uh, have now made their home in central London. So I'm, I'm sure the UK government will find a way to negotiate that tricky path between morals and money. Chad Bray, I expect there'll be much more to come on the Country Garden story. We'll, of course, see more of you on scmp.com. And, of course, my chance to say... This is my last podcast for the SEMP, and it's been great working with you. Thank you so much, and I will leave you in the very, very capable hands of Jasmine Zayt. Thank you, Chad Bray. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Jasmine. Um, always great to join you, and you know we're going to miss you on the podcast. It's been a, it's been a good run. Well, Chad, let me take this opportunity to say, baby, we were born to run. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jared. I'll see you on the other side. With me is Joe Sin. He's our tech desk editor at the SEMP, but he's written numerous analysis columns about the state of China's economy, even the state of China's society. Joe Sin, welcome. Thank you, Jared. I need to ask you the question. This this narrative, you know, big China, bad China, weird China. Is there a new one? Stagnant China. Is that the new narrative that the economy itself has stagnated if not with stagflation, then with just very low growth. What happens next? Where are we with China? Well, Jared, I think we should say there's a risk of a stagnated China. It's not a done deal, okay? And I I still have full confidence in the capabilities of the 1.4 billion people. And, uh, and they are really, really uh, hardworking. If you go back to uh, uh, China, you can see all these. Uh, although there, I know there are lots of headline grabbing saying people are laying flat, you know, people are giving up. The evolution is just too hard. But if you really look at um, um, the, the the people on the streets, you can see like hardworking people. You know, you imagine like these uh, um, Uber drivers, these DD drivers who worked like fourteen hours a day and seven days a week just to have to make enough money to meet life's ends uh, in their cities or to uh, feed their families. And you look at this, uh, yesterday there's a huge flood. And, you know, one of the most touching scenes in Shenzhen is that, you know, these food delivery guys are still doing their job during the torrents, during the, during the heavy uh, uh, storm. On one hand, you can say, like, this is really, uh, um, you know, Chinese people are really have to work that hard so that it make the make the money. But on the other hand, you can see also the, the spirit and also the desire for better life has not died. Well, it's very right that you say that it would be unwise for people to underestimate the power of the struggle. You know, it's, in, it's written in China's history. You would say the national psyche struggling against, you know, great odds to get somewhere. Conversely, though, there is also that suggestion that the whole compact, the deal that the Beijing central government has with the people of mainland China is that you don't really need democracy and these kinds of things. We will take care of that and in return we'll give you bountiful economic growth. The signs aren't good right now for bountiful economic growth. So what's the way forward? Because it appears that the old strategies of you know, big fiscal stimulus 
stimulus to the, the economy and in terms of infrastructure either is not working or is not going to be chosen? Uh, well, I think if you just look at the stimulus, I think, yes, the government is not willing to uh, do another massive stimulus, uh, A, because uh, the money is running out, uh, the government doesn't have such a luxury of uh, providing these fiscal resources, you know, without inflating the already very big problem of the debt. And also, secondly, the uh, the results of uh, uh, a pure fiscal uh, stimulus may not uh, as effective as uh, uh, most people hope, uh, because the problem is really not with money, it's about confidence. If we take a longer perspective, I think in the last 40 or 45 years since uh, Deng Xiaoping has started the reform and opening up, I think the biggest takeaway for the whole nation is that the state has finally started to trust in the people and allow the people to do what they're good at. You know, entrepreneurs should start their businesses, scientists do their research. Uh, so th this kind of joint efforts by individuals has created China's prosperity and created China's power. So the biggest risk is not really whether Beijing will have another stimulus or not. Where the, the, you know, the state is starting to lose faith in the people and the people start to lose faith in the state. So some worrying signs we are already seeing, you know, the government has increasingly, or the state has increasingly started to meddle into uh, every day of social and economic life, meddle into every day of uh, corporate management. Uh, this is really bad for the future of the nation. I want to take you up on that point, Jason, that we have, you know, over the years on this podcast and on other podcasts, sort of documented the, the various crackdowns. We had the crackdown on tech, we had the crackdown on property, there's the three red lines. These all seem to be about, you know, the, the central government or indeed the party asserting control over these sectors that was seen to be, you know, getting wayward. Well, now they've asserted control it looks like they're the ones that have to come up with the answers, and I don't see where the answers are coming from. Well, this is a um, this is a well. If we if we try to answer the um, you know questions, why the the state is doing this, you know, on the surface it uh, seems very unreasonable. Why you you kill or you know you you try to kneecap your best performing companies? Why you try to kill the uh, industry that is feeding uh, millions of people? So I think the biggest uh, problem is that. It, it's about the fear, you know, because um, uh, China is entering a kind of like new development area, there's multiple uh, different types of uh, risks. Uh, so the, the, the state has becoming uh, increasingly obsessed with uh, security. And sometimes uh, with these security issues, of course, if you overdone it, you know, you, you basically you kill, kill the entrepreneurship and the, the innovation. So, for instance, uh, in cracking down the big tech, the concept is that, you know, the private capital, basically, they are evil. So they have to be controlled or curbed. They have to be contained in a certain way. And this is absolutely unnecessary. It's like, uh, you know, the China, 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 one child policy, okay? For so many years, China just afraid of this uh, um, population explosion that there will be like 2 billion or 3 billion Chinese people and they will exhaust the whole country's resources. But this is just, uh, uh, you know, when we look back, we know that it's, uh, it's clearly an exaggeration. Uh, the, the fear is not uh, funded. And for now, we're, we're fear of uh, capital, we're fear of uh, population explosion, and also we fear of like uh, speculation, all these kind of uh, 
uh, vaguely defined terms that has dominated like practical policies. This is something that I uh, I, I find it's quite um, disturbing about when looking into the country's future. So you mentioned Deng Xiaoping before, and he was you know he's the man credited with opening up China. Here we are, fifty odd years later after that happened, with a new era, and it appears that China is looking inward. It is said no to the the foreign uh, analyst companies. There's a huge drop in foreign investment. What's the way forward? How does the Beijing central government walk both sides of the street, so to speak? How is it open still to be the, the factory of the world while at the same time sort of shutting the doors to investment and, and, and outside influence? Well, this is a very good question. And also, you know, this is also the beauty, as I often said, uh, in analyzing China, because no one really has the, uh, has the answer. You know, you don't, you don't know. You know, maybe today we are still t- talking about, you know, uh, dynamic zero is the only way forward, and tomorrow we just suddenly, like, open up. So this is uh, this something, when we, when we um, uh, look into the future, predicting uh, China's future, I think one challenge and also one opportunity is that we have to look like different forces within China. It's, and it's, uh, the, the dynamic is so complicated that nobody really knows. So if short term to say, maybe the economy is bad, so we lean towards opening and more business friendly. And if everything is, uh, is good and we, we'll, uh, the policy will lean back to be more focused on security, etc. And then we will see this back and forth moving forward, I guess, for a long period of time. You know, it's really interesting, you know, over the past few years doing this podcast, producing these podcasts with you and the political economy team, Jason, I think I have seen just about every single so-called China watcher push out their opinions and it's sort of reached fever pitch the last few weeks of people speculating or they really know what's happening in China this week. But at the same time, I think we look at news events and just look at the basics of, well, that's the end of China's tech sector because they can't get semiconductors. And then lo and behold, there's a, there's a new revelation from Huawei, uh, all this kind of thing. Is that the only thing we can really rely on? And that is, we can't rely on any news? <laughs> well, as a beauty of uh, um, uh, looking to uh, China is that, you know, it's never short of uh, surprises. So, um, but behind these surprises, of course, there are much more, uh, you know, in-depth kind of stru- structural problems. And let's see. Let's uh, uh, let's hope for the best and prepare for the worst. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting point, Jason. And also, I think we're also seeing the reality of no matter how much the the hawkish rhetoric from either side, we're seeing the effects of climate change as we speak today in Hong Kong. The the biggest rainstorm ever on on records. We're seeing you know the planet basically on fire across all the continents. We can only hope that these folks are see the common goal together and work together. And of course, China's going to be a big part of that solution. Yes, I, I guess we have to be optimistic, right? Otherwise, uh, we just, you know, everything we do is just completely meaningless. <laughs> we, there's no marketing reporting good news. But I tell you what, Josine, it's been uh, almost eight years for me at the South China Morning Post. This is my final podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you. Thank you so much for the education. Thank you so much for getting on the mic. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jared. You will be remembered, I think, for SMP Podcast. Thank you very much.
That's all for this episode, and that's all from me. But I have great confidence in my fabulous co-producer, Jasmine Zer, in taking out the reins in what we have only half-jokingly called the one-person department down this end of the newsroom in Causeway Bay. She is, of course, backed up by one of the world's greatest multicultural news teams. And I have to tell you that it's been an experience that has gone beyond my wildest dreams about who one might get to meet and what kind of stories one might get to work on in the field of journalism. You know, I looked at our iTunes stats today and I can see our audiences all over the world. We've got a lot of people listening here in Hong Kong, but you're also in the USA, Vietnam, Singapore, the United Kingdom, Canada, Germany, Australia, just to name a few. And I love looking at all those countries through South America and Northern Europe, but I love seeing how many people are listening in mainland China. Our job here was to help lead the global discussion about China and its relationships with the global community, and I hope we helped you get a better understanding of the big issues beyond the headlines. So let me say once again, don't forget to stay up to date with the latest stories and the best analysis with our 24-hour global newsroom at scmp.com. My name is Jared Watt. It's been an absolute honour, privilege and pleasure to make podcasts with the SCMP team and to make them for you. And as we say back where I come from, hooroo, see you later.